Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Brian Lubers, Dr. Bob Larson, Dr. Dustin Pendle, and Dr. Philip Lancaster. Good morning, guys. Hey, good morning. Morning. Good morning, Brad. Hopefully everybody is having a good fall so far, and we've got several good topics to talk about today. We're going to hit on a little bit of uh, some different areas as we're going to talk some Ag Econ, as we think about the, the beef balance sheet, some of the numbers that came out, talking about imports and exports. Also going to address some bull management as we come into fall. There are some fall calvers, so it's time to start thinking about what that looks like. And then we're going to follow up on a couple conversations that we've had, one relative to grazing management and really more on the monitoring side. And Philip, we want to dig into what's that biodiversity look like in our, our pastures, as well as we're going to get Brian to, to talk some about the antibiotics and antibiotic use, really looking at treatment for BRD and what are some of our next topics. We appreciate you listening. As always, if you have a topic or a question for us, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. Uh, we also have a good conference coming up here in Kansas. If you're local or in the region, uh, they always have a good slate of speakers at the K-State Stalker Field Day, and that's coming up here very soon on September 30th. So I think that would be something great to attend if you're available. Um, before we jump into those topics, guys, I've, I've got to tell you, there sometimes you just can't assess or you don't get the right assessment on a person or a calf because I've had, as we've moved our cows this summer, there's one calf that's always, he doesn't move with everybody else, right? You move between pastures. And I thought for a while, he just wasn't very smart. But now I have determined, I think he's belligerent. He just wants to stay behind wherever he was, and he just won't go through the gate. So any yeah. suggestions or solutions for how to manage a belligerent calf? All right. So just, you started this by saying something about people and or animals. So I didn't know what, exactly what route you were going. So I just, are you stupid or belligerent? And I, yes. I didn't really it's know. Sometimes you've got to differentiate between those two things. And you're, and you're talking cattle now, right? I'm talking cattle. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's my clarification. All right. So no, I, you know, it's, it's interesting because even, you know, you go back to, I can remember a couple of cow numbers from my childhood that, you know, still old cow 44 when I was just a kid, uh, she was beyond belligerent. Um, she, and, and yeah, there's, they certainly, I think there's some of them that almost enjoy just making my life difficult. Yeah. Yeah. That, that really didn't, that wasn't as helpful as you thought it might've been. I thought you were going to give me a solution. No, no got solution. no solution. No, there's not a solution. I mean, the solution is, I mean, if it's a cow, you can sell her if she annoys you enough. If it's a calf, hang on a little bit longer and he's gone too. So, but yeah, we, yep, you've got, you've got one. That's, so there that's you go. what we've decided. He's, sometimes there's the, it's not, Usually it's no calf left behind. Well, sometimes he gets left behind. He has to catch up with everybody else. So he's yeah, we figured had a, it out. We, we had another cow that, that spent the, the winter in the summer pasture because she wasn't coming out. She wasn't leaving. Yeah. No, she was not crazy. leaving. So that's not just me. No. Well, let's, let's jump into some numbers here. And, and Dustin, I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts and everybody else's thoughts as well. The, uh, there were some numbers that came out and, and, Looking at USDA projections, and I'll kind of summarize briefly their projections for 2021, um, projecting a little bit lower production level, and both the imports and the exports have gone up, keeping the relationship the same that we're a net exporter. Also looking at 
projections for 2022 continuing to be a net exporter, but maybe those exports going down a little bit. And like to get your perspective, what does that what does that mean for us, Dustin? So yeah, the USDA numbers that you're talking about, they came out saying beef was going to be down by what 130 million pounds, which I think we estimated to be about half a percent. Uh, a lot of things going on, right? You know, we've seen this probably the second year now, second, third year uh, of inventory numbers, the contraction for that cattle yep. cycle. Uh, you know, the Western United States has been in drought, so we possibly could see uh, some liquidation of some animals, some herds out there. Uh, imports, exports, you noted, I think they were both up by about the same, so they offset each other. Uh, we've seen a really strong global demand uh, recently. I think as of July 21, there was about a, I think we had about 220 million pounds. So it's about a 17% increase over the previous uh, July with most of that coming uh, from China, Hong Kong, Taiwan. Um, also Mexico and the Caribbean were up by quite a bit as well. And so again, beef export markets we've talked about i don't know how many times on previous podcasts but you know the export markets are uh, very important uh, to the beef industry uh, you think about all the products that maybe we don't consume here uh, that that do derive some value uh, for those those live animals uh, then fast forward to what you say 2022 the projections looking there probably Still going to be down some uh, from a, a production, U.S. production standpoint. Uh, we've been a, a net exporter of beef for, for a number of years now. And so I think they're still expecting that, although imports may be up a little more, whereas exports might be down just by a little bit. Uh, again, I think in terms of prices, it's hard to, to project. Uh, I would say we're probably still in really good shape, though, given that we're still going to be net exporters. Uh, production is going to be down slightly. So I, don't know, and just, and I think that's a it's a challenge when you start looking out, or at least to me, or maybe I don't understand it. It's a challenge to look that far into the future and say, here's exactly what's going to happen. But we know that impacts our our prices as we look toward the next year. Still, still going to stay a, a net exporter. Yeah, and I mean, there's so many things that can happen, right? Just think about over the past year with, you know, the past what year and a half, two years with a fire and then COVID and then more recently, another fire, uh, BSC down in Brazil. Uh, those all are game changers. Uh, and there's other game changers that we, we maybe don't talk about such as African swine fever in China, right? I just mentioned that, you know, from June or, you know, June 21 versus June 9 or 2020, where it was a, 20 or 17 percent increase in beef exports well 82 percent increase to china hong kong and taiwan so why china i'm you know it probably has a lot to do with that african swine fever and so again that's not necessarily a direct impact to the beef industry but uh indirectly when there's no uh, pork or when they're reducing the size of their herds for a pork or swine in china Right there is that demand for protein, and beef does fill that void there. So there's a lot of things that can happen overnight, as we've seen recently, uh, that can change a lot of these things. 
Yeah, definitely. It doesn't take long for uh, our best crystal ball projection to be uh, messed up by some other event. It's like you're shaking that crystal ball, right? Yeah, there you go. Shake it. Shake it. Shake it again. No globe you're thinking of. Oh, that's a snow. That's not how this is supposed to work. That's a magic eight ball. Okay. Magic eight ball. I got one of those and I got a snow globe, but I don't have a crystal ball. Yeah. Hey, hey, Dustin, I had a question. So from somebody that's probably not as experienced with this stuff. So, you know, 130 million pounds, 144 million pounds, those sound like huge numbers, but as you mentioned, you know, they're tenths of a percent changes. Are those, is that just kind of normal fluctuation or are those trends that maybe somebody like yourself, you'd start to pay attention to? So a 17%, I mean, I haven't looked at recently, but a 17%, so export markets were up, I want to say 17%. Uh, if you go back from July, 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 uh, July 21 to July 20, have we had increases that size probably since in the last 10, 15 years? I want to say yes, it's probably been, I don't know if it's much bigger than that, but we've had some that might be hitting, hitting that roughly. Uh, but definitely that would be at the larger end. But we, we've had those, I guess, is what I'm saying in recent memory. Generally, they are smaller than that. You know, it could be three, five, eight percent increases in a year. But we still had 15 uh, upwards of 20 percent increase in a given year. So it's not uncommon. It might be, I guess, yes, it, we've, we've seen that before. So it's not necessarily something that, wow, that's never seen that before. But it is definitely big, and it's definitely contributing, I think, to uh, uh, putting some upward pressure on prices on uh, the live cattle. Yeah, that's the that's the take home for us is export and being a next net exporter and continuing to expand that makes a huge difference on the on the price of cattle. And when you combine that with, as you said, from the uh, contraction of the herd size for a variety of reasons, both both those things are positive. So hopefully that helps you and your your operation. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk uh, talk a little bit about bull management. We talk about that a lot in the spring. And if you're interested, you can go back. We've got some podcasts there in March as we talked about preparing the bulls for the breeding season. We talked about preseason training. I want to talk, and, and Bob, I want to ask you a specific question relative to, let's say I've got a spring and a fall herd. And each of those calving seasons is around 90 days. So my bull came off the calving season in the spring and he's got a month or two off in the fall and then he's got to go back to work. Anything in that situation that may be unique or how do I get him prepared for that? Because uh, unlike the other scenarios, he hasn't, he hasn't had as much time. Yeah, but, but reality, the reality is I think that's not a, we're not asking the bull to do more than he can in that um, a a 90 or even 120 day breeding season, something like that. He's got some time to rest and and make sure that his body condition is, you know, back, um, you know, so that he's ready to enter the the breeding season. Uh, You know, typically bulls work for one breeding season a year, and that's probably really underutilizing them. And that's why some operations, if they're large enough and have the management to handle it, um, might be interested in using you know, uh, a spring and fall breeding season to kind of reduce their bull cost per pregnancy and kind of get more efficient use out of their bulls. They might also do that for some calf marketing reasons and things like that. But it does um, reduce your bull cost 
per pregnancy by basically, you, you have the opportunity to get twice as many breedings in a year uh, from a bull if you use him twice. And, and we're really not asking him to do too much. He, we probably give him too long of a vacation um, in a one breeding season a year type of a scenario. So it's certainly something we can do. But understand that after coming out of a breeding season, he's probably lost a lot of body condition. It's possible that he's got foot or leg problems. You know, it might be a temporary problem or it might be something more serious. And so before you turn around and use him again, I do a really thorough breeding soundness exam. And, and by that, you know, really check out the feet and legs, make sure the body condition score is good. And again, even if he passed a semen evaluation, you know, six months ago or earlier in the year, I would certainly do that again, because uh, these bulls, um, again, they went through a breeding season, so they possibly experienced some stress and some other issues. They could have been injured. Uh, and so I want to do a really thorough breeding soundness exam, you know, good physical exam, as well as a semen evaluation, even if I did it six months before, because from a, from a bull's lifetime production, six months is a long time. Yeah. And from, a, and what you're saying is a BSE is not a once a year. It's a once per breeding season. Event. I like the, I like the way you said that it's a once per breeding season event. And if you're breeding once a year, then it's once a year. But if you're breeding twice a year, it's a twice a year, uh, evaluation yeah because i saw the t-shirt stuff happens right yeah the exactly sticker. and that's yeah. especially true with bulls oh the I, so. yeah they I, again kind of back to some of you know yeah some of them seem to be trying to get into trouble so but and and this is not why you would have a spring and fall herd but your point is really good that it, it decreases my bull cost per pregnancy which is really it, the income driver from those bulls is how many pregnancies he gets. So I can I can have a bull maybe a little more efficient. And we talked a lot when we talked in the spring about nutrition. And Philip, I want, want to ask you, same story as we come into fall. Should I should I be supplementing these bulls or now I've got grass out there? Can I just leave them on grass? Well, yeah, yeah, you can definitely leave them on grass. And so I mean, think about it a little bit different. You know, coming through the winter versus over the summer, you know, they had a better quality base ration in, in the forage out there than they probably did in the hay that they were consuming and things like that. But it depends on your forage system. Now, if, if you're in an area with cool season grasses, then, you know, those cool season grasses are starting to regrow here in the fall. And so he's going to have some pretty good quality nutrition and he should be back into good shape um, by, you know, November when a typical fall breeding season would start. Um, now, if you're in an area with warm season grasses, those warm season grasses are shutting down. You know, they're, they're shutting down, they're, they're getting mature, the quality's decreasing. And so he's definitely going to need some protein supplement to get the most out of that uh, warm season forage here through the early fall if you have if you still have enough for him to graze or he may need some hay or some um, additional supplement depending on how much quantity of forage is still out there in the pasture yeah absolutely and I think keeping a close eye on it because the more time you have the easier it is to change body condition if you get down to the last minute you're not going to be able to change it very readily. And I think that's important. The other thing I'll, I'll throw out there, and sometimes it gets lost, lost in the shuffle. And Brian, I want to get your perspective because I've got, a, let's say I've got a spring herd and I've got a fall herd and they're my cows, 
So maybe I don't really worry about biosecurity, but if they're at separate locations or those herds are separate, is there anything I should think about relative to biosecurity between those herds? Yeah, and I think I think it comes down to just what you just said, Brad. It's if if you're managing two subgroups of the same herd, that's a different situation than if they're really managed more as two separate herds. And so just just remember that, you know, if you're if you're using bulls in a, a spring herd, a spring spring breeding herd, and a fall breeding herd. Um, those bulls are moving back and forth, and so you know, I think sometimes we get lost that oh my my fall breeding herd is over here, um, and I'm bringing some new additions into that group, and so my spring herd isn't really at risk. Well, if the if the bull's moving back and forth, they could be, and so um, some of that stuff um, is part of it. Just a, a good breeding soundness exam, but you know. The one I think of is, you know, trichomoniasis would be one we'd want to make sure that we've um, we've tested for within that bull because he can certainly transmit that between the two herds. So um, that, you know, just basic good biosecurity practices. And we've talked about a lot of those on on different podcasts as well. Absolutely. And to follow up on that, as we're moving between herds, sometimes the bull battery gets shuffled and changes. And so be sure to have those bulls kind of housed together before they go into that situation to handle some of the social things, right? So they don't just jump in with a new group and spend their time arguing instead of doing their, instead of doing their job. Our BCI Cal Chat checklist this week are things to consider when using your bull for a fall breeding season after he's been through a spring breeding season. Number five, create an appropriate biosecurity plan. Number four, acclimate the bull battery that will be in the same pasture together. Three, perform a physical examination. Make sure the feet and vision are good. Number two, provide adequate nutrition to maintain good body condition. And number one, make sure they pass another breeding soundness examination. And that's our BCI Cattle Chat checklist for this week. So I wanted to follow up, and, and Philip, last time we, we had a great discussion relative to grazing and monitoring. And we just started to get into the, well, into the weeds, so to speak, but into the details of how do I monitor? And one of the things that came up in our conversation was, well, we should, we should monitor um, my pasture and some of the species diversity and some of the biomass. How, how do you actually do that? What, what would be some of your tools? Well, so... Depends on how, I guess, how uh, exact you want to be or, you know, last time we were talking about, you know, monitoring pastures and seeing change over time, you know, and sometimes our memory is not as good as we think it should be. And so actually recording some things that you can go back and look at and look at trends over time is a good idea. Um, and so... So some of the, the, from a species diversity, we hear about that from a sustainability perspective a lot. You know, how many different species out there are, have we got out there to, to maintain a, a functional ecosystem and things like that. And diversity, though, is a kind of a catch-all term. It's not really a measure. There are, there are some specific measures that are used to evaluate diversity. And one of those is called like species richness. And so basically what that is is just how many different species are out there. So if you take a walk across your pasture, how many different species do you, of plants do you see out there? 
Um, and it, from a from a producer perspective, though, um, you know, we're those different species have a function as far as wildlife habitat and other things like that. But we probably want to keep track of um, this what those specific, some of those specific species are and whether they're beneficial or not. So, you know, just because I've got a pasture that's got a whole bunch of um, Cerecia lespedeza in it, you know, and other weeds, it's pretty diverse, but it's not very functional. Um, but there are other forbs and legumes out there that are, and so we want to keep track of the, um, I say, the beneficial one, uh, species versus the detrimental species to my overall um, pasture utilization and and, um, and health. So taking some pictures and maybe maybe counting some of those things would be would be useful. Dustin, you had a. I was going to ask. Yes, coming back to the pictures, but how often? I mean, right? So, are you walking through doing this in the spring in the spring time, or are you constantly doing this to monitor how things change across the seasons? And then also, this comes back to uh, Brad's question about pictures and yeah, measuring the, that. Yeah, so I mean, pictures help document some things, but you know, you can't take. A, picture of the whole pasture very effectively um and so but back to your question about time i think it, it depends somewhat on what your goals are you know in the in the native systems where we use fire we use fire at different times of year to promote different species or to to control different species and so um because those species are growing at different times uh, throughout the year and so you've got to if you want to evaluate all those species you probably need to evaluate them at different times a year or multiple times a year let me put it that way so um looking at things probably in the spring and late summer give you a better picture of the plant species diversity out there than um just picking one time a year or another yeah and i think that makes sense to do it multiple times it's something to easy to fall by the wayside the other thing that i would say is most of the changes are slow right so as you as you look at a developed pasture that's already in place and you start making some management changes they're not overnight and so some of those things you might see an evolution over years because we're in this for the long game of rebuilding make sure that pasture is good we've talked about before how, how late i graze in the fall impacts how soon i can graze in the spring and it's the same thing with some of these diversity requirements. Uh, also, changes how we're uh, managing that soil health through the process. And it goes, that goes back to the good record keeping. And even pictures, if you take the, a picture of the same place every year, then you can track how it's changing and how your management's affecting it, um, as opposed to using a picture to try to evaluate the whole pasture. That lets you see changes over time. Yeah. And I'm 100% with you on the... Uh, I'm not sure how good my memory is. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not that great because sometimes I look at it and say, I'm not sure the pasture's improving that much. But then if you look at pictures from a year or two ago, you go, well, yeah, maybe we are making some progress here in the direction we want to go. But the other thing that you brought up, you have to have a specific direction you want to go. So I think good, good points there, good continuing discussion. 
And, and I want to get to, uh, before we run out of time, I want to get to our last topic because I think it's a big one. And Brian, last time we talked about uh, specifically and, and specifically for bovine respiratory disease or BRD, uh, a lot of times we'll use an antimicrobial treatment. And we talked about a post-treatment interval or how long you'd wait between treatments. And it's important to work with your veterinarian to come up with a protocol that works for you. But I want to ask you in general terms, Brian, what, um, if I've treated an animal and let's say they didn't respond and I waited the appropriate length of time, what, what are the thoughts on treating it with the same antibiotic again or treating it with a different antibiotic? Okay, so I'm going to answer your question first with a story, with what we think we know, and then what I tell people. Okay, so the story is, so Dr. Lancaster, Dr. Larson, and I have been involved in this conversation the last few days about teaching students. And the, the short version of that long conversation is that as we all become more experienced in our careers, we are getting more comfortable saying, I don't know, and I don't think anybody else knows the answer to certain questions. And I, I think this is probably one of those questions, Brad. Um, what What we have traditionally told people is that if you have an animal that you treated with an antibiotic, then the recommendation is to not only change the antibiotic, but change the antibiotic class. So, so we don't want to use something that's in the same class of antibiotics. And the reason we have told people that is it is really centered around antibiotic resistance. So if I treat an animal with an antibiotic and it doesn't respond because the bacteria is resistant to that drug, it is likely resistant to other drugs within that class. And so we should just change. However, there are lots of other reasons why animals don't respond to antibiotic therapy that don't have anything to do with antibiotic resistance. And it, it could be simply that that animal has a, a really poor immune response and simply giving it more time with the same antibiotic and the ability, maybe the chance to be able to respond would, would be enough. Um, it might be that we misdiagnosed the disease and treating it with the same class of drug isn't going to help, but changing to another class of, of drug may not help. So there are lots of other reasons. And the, the harm with changing classes is that if we treat with two different classes of antibiotics, we may actually select for antibiotic resistance, not in the, not just in the bacteria that cause respiratory disease in cattle, but some of the other some of the other bacteria that are present within that cow's GI tract or on its skin that, that then could get passed down and maybe, maybe of concern to human health. And so it, it just, the recommendation to change classes um, isn't a, isn't a no harm recommendation either. And so, um, I, again, what I tell people with what we currently know, um, antibiotic resistance is the one that within the, the bacteria that cause respiratory disease, that's the one that we can kind of do the most about. So I'm still going to tell people to change classes after a failure. If you've waited um, an appropriate amount of time after that, that first treatment, give that animal a chance to respond like we talked about in that, that uh, previous podcast. And a couple, a couple things to follow up on there, Brian. One, sure. As you think about the, you, you mentioned the word class or family of drugs. So it's not just the name of the drugs and many of our top drugs 
when they're in a class or a family, and you can correct me here, but they share kind of a baseline chemical structure, and then there's modifications or uh, yep. changes, and so then they all work in pretty much the same way. So this this is where you'll have to work with your your veterinarian, and and they will know which drugs are in which class. So you don't have to keep track of that. Um, and they'll likely know what Dr. Luber's just talked about. So it's it's more than just uh, if I was sitting at home and I had two drugs on my shelf and I said, hey, I'm going to use a different drug. And I know you guys have encountered this, too. I've seen that in the field and we weren't actually doing anything different. Right. They, they were using a different drug, but they were in the same family or class. Is that is that what you're getting at, Brian? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So antibiotics are are our chemicals, they have a structure. And like you said, many of the ones within the same class have, have very similar structures and they work in the bacteria the same way. And so just by changing to a different product um, may or may not get you around an, an antibiotic resistance issue. However, I think there's enough uncertainty with this question that I, I certainly have seen and, and talked to veterinarians who feel that even staying with the same drug for a second treatment. So first and second treatment, same drug, and then maybe moving to a different class, third treatment. Uh, there's enough uncertainty for me. I, I'm certainly not going to criticize that practice. So like you said, work work with your veterinarian. Um, you may get slightly different responses. Like you said, I, and that's why I preface this with a, as I age and get more experience, I, I'm getting more comfortable saying I this is an answer I probably don't know. And I'm I'm not sure anybody else has the exact answer. Well, and that was, that's my second point is I think that was a great lead in to this topic, but it applies to a lot of our things is it, we may not know exactly the answer, but in lack of perfect information, we still have to make decisions. Yep. And one of the things that I would encourage is tracking the outcomes of those decisions and applying them in a consistent fashion, right? So if sometimes I do this, sometimes I change back to this scenario, sometimes I change and sometimes I don't change, it's going to be really hard for me to ever figure out what works and what doesn't. So I've got to make a decision, but then I track outcomes and I'm saying, does this, does this make sense or not? And then being open to continuing to learn, which I think that's the other point that you made, Brian, is we don't know all the answers today and we probably won't know them tomorrow, but we're going to keep trying to learn as we move through the process. So Appreciate your input because I know that's a, a frequent question that we see. And speaking of frequent questions, if you have a question for us and you'd like us to talk about it on the podcast, we always enjoy doing those. And you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.